amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to Becoming the Journey. This show will be a series of conversations that will inspire listeners along their life's journey. This show's mission is to cultivate a community of mentorship by sharing our experiences and our life's journey. Nobody's journey is a straight line. So no matter where you are in yours, this show is for you. Meet Grace Lavray. Welcome, listeners. This is Becoming the Journey, and you are listening to us on any platform you prefer. We are on iHeartRadio, WOR710. And we're about conversations with our guests whose thoughts and opinions on topics they're most informed about will resonate with my listeners. Contact us on Instagram at Becoming the Journey or by email at becomingthejourney at gmail.com. I'd like to know what you're thinking or struggling with to open a dialogue. I welcome all views and stories. Today, my guest is Paul David Pope. He's an author, historian, speaker, and my favorite part, humanitarian. Paul's book, Deeds of My Fathers, How My Grandfather and Father built New York and created the tabloid world of today is the story of his grandfather who came to this country and built an empire and his father who took the New York Enquirer to national fame. Welcome, Paul. Trace, thank you for having me. Ah, Paul, let's start with your grandfather, Generoso Pope Sr. He arrived from Italy at age 15 now it's all yours. Okay. Well, he arrived at 15 at Ellis Island, and, uh, you know, he came from a small hamlet in Italy, and he didn't speak a word of English. He spent the first night in New York City, Grace, on a park bench. He had maybe $5 in his pocket, and truly he, you know, ended up building, you know, becoming the owner of the world's largest sand and gravel company, Colonial Sand and Stone. Uh, That took him about 10 years. And he also, along the way, started uh, purchasing newspapers, radio stations, uh, Il Progresso, which was like the Bible for Italians coming over then. Basically, he became the most Italian influential, you know, immigrant ever of, of, of that, of that era, if you will. And in, in my book, the deeds of my fathers, I did a ton of research, um, you know, learning about him. Of course, I knew from my father a lot about him, but I learned even more. He, uh, he was just a, a giant of a man, Grace. He was a huge man. Talk about a little bit about, I know he worked in the sand pits, and that's how he got involved with the uh, cement company and then Colonial Sand and Stone. But in order to have that influence, I think he had to kind of hang out with people who were probably more influential at that time. 
Uh, talk a little bit about that. Sure. In fact, you know, those days and those times, you couldn't really achieve what he did without sort of running into or having some partnerships, if you will, with some nefarious characters. I guess that's an understatement. So he had to forge some alliances with people that were like that uh, and, and organized crime. And, uh, and you know, so he had, you know, peeling the layers of the onion back, he had those types. In fact, uh, Frank Costello, a lot of the old-time gangsters, uh, um, you know, probably the top five biggest, uh, Joe Perfacci, um, they all, you know, were his buddies. And in fact, you know, um, you know, it's it's just one of those stories. And in fact, he actually went on to start a, a small division in the in the CIA called Psychological Warfare that my father later served in. But we'll get to that later. But Frank Costello also, this is interesting. You'll enjoy this. He was my father's birthright godfather, not godfather literally, but you know, godfather, you know. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of these people in the story. And I sort of grew up around, you know, some of these characters, not all, because many of them had passed by the time I was born. But as you can imagine, it's been uh, quite a journey. It's been quite a journey. And, you know, he had to, he became a kingmaker. Literally, Grace, nobody could get in office if he didn't approve it. Uh, be that a president, a pope. Uh, you know, he was friends with Mussolini. Uh, you know, he was uh, he was very he leveraged his, you know, especially when he bought uh, Il Progresso, he leveraged his power beyond just wealth in the concrete company. And that's really where he took off. But he and, had and eventually know, I was going to say eventually he had to denounce Mussolini at some point, right? <clears throat> he did. He did right before he passed. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, he was in his tenure. He was around a lot during the Tammany Hall days. And, you know, I mean, uh, from what I've learned, it was quite an interesting time. Yeah. Do you think your your grandfather's connections, I mean, I, I realize they were unavoidable in that era, but do you think they were more for him to be able to explore his vision than really thrive on the notoriety? Or did he really thrive on that notoriety? He wanted that power. I think he wanted the power, and with the power came the influence, right? He could do what he wanted to do, uh, such as elect presidents, popes, things of that nature. Um, I think in the beginning, perhaps, you know, on his sort of meteoric rise, you know, again, you know, interviewing, we interviewed about 1,500 people in the last three and a half decades. <clears throat> and I'll get to that a little bit in the Pope Media Center archive. But a lot of the people that, that knew him and grew up with him, you know, I think it, you know, one thing led to the other. And he, he just, you know, he didn't want to just have wealth. He wanted to have power and influence. And nothing would give him that sort of influence like owning all the newspapers and radio stations and things of that nature. And, of course, as you mentioned, Grace, having those alliances with uh, the right people. You know, it's right. all about, I, I say in life, it's all about positioning. Positioning is, is key in a company. It's key in your networking. 
and positioning. I'll get to this. You'll you'll love this part. And my father went on to start a newspaper called the National Enquirer in 1952. It's like the Godfather meets Citizen Kane. And he did something that was genius beyond the celebrities and all that. He put the racks out the at the checkout counters at all the supermarkets. And again, positioning, putting them at eye level, you know, where is uh, we our demographic was the Missy Smiths, we called them, and you know, the people, the the women that would shop primarily back then, and at eye level, and we owned all the racks, or my father owned all the racks at the checkout counter. So that was a, a stroke of genius beyond anything. So did. Did your dad, so let's get to your dad now. So now your dad's in the picture, and um, he purchased the New York Enquirer for $75,000. Was was that the influence of your grandfather and his positioning of owning these newspapers? Or was it just, I mean, there were so many things your dad could have gotten involved in, but he his passion was really that newspaper um, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, your dad, do you think he did things a bit differently? Do you think it was more measured, more introverted, more passionate than wanting the notoriety and the power? Well, there's a lot. He was a very complex man, but to answer your question, Grace, he, you know, everything kind of runs in cycles. So the patriarch would choose a favorite son. And in the case of my father, uh, that created a lot of sibling rivalry with the with the siblings and, and his own biological mother, even if you can believe that. And, you know, the same thing happened to me. But going back to my father, he, he tried a few different things. He, he served in that division I mentioned, psychological warfare and the CIA. He was not the stereotypical tabloid owner. You know, he graduated MIT in two and a half years with an engineering degree. So he was uh, uh, an introvert and an intellectual, for sure. And, you know, I think he just wanted to make his point to his family, you know, that, hey, you know, I can do it. So it's definitely a Horatio Alger story, you know, rags to riches to rags to riches. And he was out going out one night in New York City with his buddies, you know, some of his running mates. And uh, he went into a bar and heard about this Hearst publication for sale. And that's how he, you know, then purchased the New York Enquirer in 1952. By the way, that money came from uh, Frank Costello, who was his godfather, interestingly enough, <clears throat> the loan. Uh, so, you know, I, I would often talk to my father about why he got into what he did. And, you know, I, I don't think it was entirely measured, no. I, I just think it was a happenstance kind of thing because – you take a guy with that type of education, and, uh, you know, I, I think the, the last thing he ever thought he would be doing was would be running a tabloid newspaper, <laughs> you know. Um, and he wasn't into celebrities, you know. He, he ran it like a business, and, uh, you know, it was, again, it was wildly successful. So he, he built his own empire apart from what my grandfather did, and, you know, so it's, you know— I have the ultimate regard for, for both uh, my grandfather and my father for what they achieved. And But no, my father, it was a very complex kind of thing. But uh, at the end of the day, I think he enjoyed it. 
and it it bought him, I think, more the fulfillment and the gratification. Grace came from the level of success more than the work itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so when when you purchased the New York Enquirer and then took it national, and you can explain that he moved from New York to Florida, do, do you think he really saw it as a tabloid or how we see tabloids today? Or did he start out believing that it was going to be just real journalism? And you often use the phrase, uh, give the people what they want, Um and so he kind of leaned more toward that. So it became this tabloid versus real journalism kind of a newspaper. Well, he tried many different formulas before he landed on the one. He tried gore. He saw a decapitated head on the road one day. He started running those types of stories on the cover. It picked up circulation. It got to like a million, but that wasn't enough. He wanted more. Uh, you know, then he got into the sensationalism, and that bumped it up, of course, even higher. So, but the one thing that changed everything, as I mentioned, was when we got into the supermarket, when my father got into the supermarkets. But then he had to tone the sensationalism down a little bit, and he had to tone, you know, tone it down a bit, you know. So, although he gained uh, circulation, the sensational part kind of dropped down a bit. So it was an interesting mix, you know, back in those days, as you can imagine, um, you know, print journalism, we had a pass along readership of five and our circulation for about 15 years was about five to six million copies a week. So, you know, it was, uh, let me say this, he had his fingers on the pulse. He had this innate sense of knowing what the people wanted. And, you know, that was unusual because he he didn't grow up in that sort of, you know, background and lifestyle, but yet he knew what people wanted to read and what they wanted to see. Uh, in fact, um, um, you, know, you may not know this story, but in 1979, he took the National Enquirer to Four Color. So we he owned the printing plants here in Pompano, Florida. And then the plant was sitting empty, and that was the birth of the Weekly World News, which was our sister publication, which uh, <clears throat> was my favorite in many different ways. And that was the birth of that, which, by the way, in its height, had about 1.3 million circulation. And that became like a cult following, you know. It was uh, the UFOs, you know, Bat Boy, the Loch Ness, not Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, all, you know, What's amazing to me, and my father, if he was alive, he would be blown away. All the shows you see on TV today from the reality shows, he he, he started all that, whether you like it or not. Uh, you see these shows on Bigfoot and chasing, you know, all this, all these things. And they, they're going on for eight, nine seasons now. Uh, that was the Weekly World News. Uh, you know, that was what started all of that. So, you know, he really... He changed society as we know it. Really, he did. And in many different ways, you know. So, you know, he would send a, a writer back if we were writing an article, if a writer was writing an article. Let me give you this example and put it in context and perspective. If, if a writer was writing an article 
about a human interest article for the National Enquirer. He would make that writer go back three or four or five times and sometimes sometimes more, Grace, to rewrite it over and over and over again. He would want it. He'd like make me cry. It's not emotional enough. And he was a genius because he had to – he did something that was smart. You know, he, he created it for the masses. And what I mean by that, it wasn't an intellectual read. It was really a form of escapism. And he truly – the irony, I suppose, because uh, we'll get to that shortly, is it made millions and millions and millions of people happy. Uh, and, and you can imagine, you know, how much growing up I got teased about all this. Uh, oh, is it real? Is it this? Is it that? Growing up as a child. And, you know, the truth is we, we only lost one lawsuit, and that was the Carol Burnett lawsuit. And that was to a sympathetic jury. Uh, so, we, in, in fact, we, you know, our research and, and the articles were more vetted than any other publication ever. Uh, and to that end, you know, when we broke the Gary Hart story in 1985, the monkey business picture, that's when the mainstream press started taking, you know, my father's publication seriously because he suffered for decades from negative recognition. And, you know, that was the genesis of the New York Times and the New York Post. And they, you know, that's where, you know, they started taking us seriously. So. You know, my reaction to people that would uh, they would ask me constantly, is it real? It's all made up. It's fake. You know, it's blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I sometimes I would appease them and, you know, sometimes I would go against them. But the reality of the situation is we had the best fact checking department probably of any newspaper in the world. In fact, we were sued less than any newspaper in the world. The difference was when we were sued, Grace, it was highly highly, highly publicized, as you can imagine. So people had this, again, misconception that the Enquirer was sued constantly. No, we weren't. Uh, anyway, so I figured I'd give you a little bit of that story. So um, on, on that note, uh, is it not true that your dad started the first pay-for-source information? Absolutely. He was the one that started what's called checkbook journalism. <laughs> And it exists to this day, 100%. Yes, he did. Knowing your father as well as you did, and I, I, I'm assuming you did, how would he, and, and I know I'm getting a bit off the story right now, and we will go back, but how would he see things today? I mean, you talk about fact-checking and, you know, uh, people coming up to you and saying, is it real, is it not real? There's so much of that today. Would your dad... Uh, be, have a problem with what goes on today, and and especially that you have such a um, such an amazing history, family history, and story, and with all this cancel culture going on, and I, how would he? How do you think he'd see what goes on today? My quick answer to your question is, you know, is he would be horrified of what's happening in the world today. And he was very driven by one thing, and that would be the truth, right, journalistically, from an ethical standpoint. And today, with the cancel culture, with all these different things, I, I, it, 
I don't know exactly what he would have done with his with his newspapers because it is uh, it is an uh, unusual times right now to say the least, right? I mean that would be the understatement of uh, the last uh, couple decades here. But and it, it doesn't seem to be getting much better. But I'm the eternal optimist. There's still more good than bad in the world. But the, the, the quick answer is. I, I don't know. You know, the, the saturation, even towards the end of my father's life, the tabloid field became more saturated. I worked for my dad since I was 10, loading papers onto the truck, believe it or not, and, until the day he passed away. So that was my world. That's all I knew. But the, the answer there is, you know, I, I don't think he would have liked what's going on, and I think he would have found other ways you know, to to deliver news in a modern-day way right now with social media and other things that are going on in the world uh, to to deliver true, real news to people. Um, I got to tell you, you he would have done a lot of fact-checking because there's so much out there oh. today. I don't, you know, it is. Sometimes you just have to, I don't know, there's too much... Too much going on today that's not believable, and people believe it, and the fact-checking is probably one of the most important things that anyone can do. I don't care what media they're in, um, but um, tell us about the Elvis story. I thought that was the most fascinating thing I've ever heard, oh, and I think... I, I will. I want to go back before the Elvis, though. He, he, My father did something that was incredibly genius again. He typically almost never would run uh, stories about religion or politics in the paper. So, you know, I watched this Jay Leno interview the other night, and it was brilliant because he was talking about his mentor. One of his mentors growing up was Rodney Dangerfield. And the fact that when he was doing the late night shows, he would never discuss politics or religion, which was healthy. And it was it was pure. There was no left, right. You know, he didn't have to worry about the audience. And my father was the same way. It, it was old school. It wasn't this type of uh, uh, what's going on in the world today, for sure. Anyway, Elvis, 1977. Elvis Presley was our biggest issue ever. And it sold over 7 million copies. And, uh, you know, my father wanted a picture in the coffin, and that's what he achieved. He Many times he would send teams and teams of reporters, sometimes 40 or 50 reporters, Grace, to a location like the Elvis, like when we got Princess Grace. And, you know, money was no object. He just wanted what he wanted. And sometimes actually the editorial teams would compete against each other to get what my father wanted. It was pretty genius what he would do. And he would always get it. He would always get the scoop, um, you know, and, you know, that's sort of in my book as well. The other thing that he did that not many people know, he did what CNN and all these other networks do now. And no one really knows this. If there was an earthquake or uh, something catastrophic in nature, he would send teams of reporters to cover it. And those, those issues sold a lot of copies as well. But, you know, people don't you know, relate the inquirer to those types of things. But he's kind of the one that started that as well. Right. Uh, back in the 60s. So he started and, that. So, you know, he had and for a, my young yeah. listeners. Do you want to just 
elaborate a little bit more on on why that Elvis story sold seven million copies? Absolutely, absolutely. We ended up bribing uh, a family member of Elvis to go in with a small, tiny camera at the time and take a picture. And he wanted, my father wanted a picture of Elvis in the car. And it took probably a week. And, you know, we, they kept coming back to my father, Mr. Pope, we don't have it. We have this, but, you know, and my father said, nope, I, you know, this is what I want. And he kept sending them back and back. So they snuck through the guards and, and they walked right up and snapped the picture, you know, right in the coffin. And uh, of course we paid them at the time, quite a bit of money. We paid more than any other publication ever for our pictures, whatever, whether it was Elvis or, you know, for the young listeners, Princess Grace, uh, you know, Bart Reynolds, whatever it may have been, Madonna, Sean Penn, you know, anybody and everybody we paid sometimes, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars for these types of, of, of pictures and stories. So, and we had sources everywhere. Grace, we had sources, whether it was the PR department, the bodyguard, the driver, the, nurse uh, you know it was our network was you know fierce fierce do you think in today's media and I, and i i guess i go back to i mean a lot of the stories you had in the inquirer again you know were they believable were they not but some of them about celebrities and and the gary hart story and things like that do you think that you would have had if that happened if you were doing that today would there be a lot more lawsuits? I mean, look what Peter Thiel did to Gawker um, for telling a true story, by the way. I, I'm just wondering if if you think, you know, there would be a lot more, it would be a lot harder to bring those kinds of stories in print. Perhaps, perhaps, because the Peter Thiel thing is a, a good example with Gawker. Um, but... Some of those publications, quite frankly, they didn't have the, you know, I just want to say again, they did not have the journalistic integrity that we had, believe it or not. And that's the, you know, that was the one thing that we had. Um, and a lot of times, you know, if, if you know, we had some uh, unhappy people, we would settle out of court. You know, that was one thing we did, even if, even if we were right. You know, we just didn't want the publicity. The other thing we would do is we were intelligent and in working with a lot of celebrities rather than against them. Uh, you know, celebrities listen at 20 million readers a week or more. They needed that sort of notoriety and, and bandwidth, and we gave it to them. So the smart celebrities worked with us rather than against us, right? Of course, there was always the ones that would, didn't want to comply, and, you know, we got the story anyway. But to, to answer your question, I don't think it would have been like the Gawker thing. But yes, I do think litigation was on the increase. And today, you know, we live in a more litigious society than, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, for sure. Imagine the, imagine the field day, the National Enquirer, which I don't think many people know still exists somewhat today, but the National Enquirer would have with what's going on with the Me Too movement and people in the entertainment industry being asked to leave shows because of their uh, behavior and, and politicians. And I mean, I think they would have a field day with that. 
Oh, absolutely. I, again, you know, it would be different with the politicians. Um, and today, I think a lot more of these types of things that happen, I don't think I know, are contrived. So, you know, you have to suss out and, you know, be able to, to delineate between what's fake and what's real and what's, you know, uh, made up. Uh, because, you know, there's so many of those things as well that are going on today. And that's a shame as well, because, you know, again, how do you know what a celebrity or a politician or someone that, that a lot of people look up to, or are they saying it because they genuinely believe it? Or are they being disingenuous? Um, I, I think I know the answer, but, you know, perhaps, you know, decades ago, there was more authenticity I think in people in general, um, of course, you had, you know, you, you still had your people that would, you know, conjure up something to, to get some uh, bandwidth or exposure. But at the end of the day, there, I think there was more integrity is the word then than perhaps now. Oh, without a doubt, I will agree with you 110 yeah, percent. Sure. And I think the word integrity and ethics has been buried very deeply somewhere where at some point, someone's going to have to retrieve them again. So well, not all went well with this inquirer. Um, your dad passed, and um, you ended up uh, bidding for the inquirer. And we'll go through that story in a minute. Um, I just want to remind my listeners that they are listening to Becoming the Journey on iHeart. WOR 710, and we are talking with Paul David Pope. He has become one of my favorite people, um, and he's talking about the history of his family, and then we are going to move forward and talk a little bit about him. So give us a brief explanation what happened after your dad passed. Well, I can sum it up this way, Grace. Almost Again, it's kind of eerie, the parallels uh, in, the, you know, generationally what happened to my father and what happened to me. Again, I was, you know, the my father was a patriarch. I was a favorite child that created a lot of sibling issues, even with my own mother. So basically, just like my father, they threw him out of the business and he had to sort of recreate and, you know, start over again. The same thing happened to me. And even though I was one of the bidders and I had raised more money than anybody else, there was complicity in the sale of the paper and a lot of crazy things that occurred. And this was, I was 20 at the time when my father passed. So, uh, you know, that was back in the day when LBOs were sort of common. I'm sure you can remember those. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was a different yes, uh, landscape then, you know. Um, but nonetheless, it was a follow the money story. My father's company was a very cash-rich company. Um, he was a very uh, down-to-earth man, my father. He drove a Chevy Caprice. He didn't live in mansions. He didn't fly in private planes. He didn't have yachts. He just lived a very low-key lifestyle. And so all the money just went into the company. So for people that uh, saw this, inc including the executor of the estate, which my father funded his business, which was uh, Pete Peterson, the Blackstone Group. But, you know, he, you know, everyone, you know, the sharks came out. And, again, it's a follow-the-money story. So 
it is what it is. I don't, I don't, I don't like to live in the past too much, but uh, it makes for interesting reading for sure. So, bottom line is oh. the same thing happened to me that to, to my father. So, at uh, yes, and so I, I just so I this this blew me away that the whole Pete Peterson story because I need for my listeners to know how reputable Pete Peterson is, and yet he kind of took you down the dark path. So he was the Secretary of Commerce under Nixon. He was the yeah, chairman and yeah. CEO of Lehman Brothers. He was the chair of the New York Federal Reserve and a co-founder of Blackstone. Um, but I, I need you to put that the color on, on Pete Peterson. I really do. He's passed, um, so I think we're yeah. a little safe in that. But... No, we're okay. Listen, he was always my nemesis, but to paint a picture, you know, Pete was, he went to school uh, at MIT with my father. He actually got kicked out, by the way, for cheating. Of course, he doesn't tell that story. And uh, my father stayed on and graduated. Pete didn't. Uh, you know, Pete was an opportunist. And, you know, my father basically in New York City uh, invited Pete uh, into his life. You know, uh, you know, Pete came from a different world, a different background, and and basically help Pete, you know, with the judges and my, my, you know, my grandfather and introducing him around and networking Peterson around. He introduced him to all the people, you know, if it wasn't for my father, Pete wouldn't have, uh, you know, Pete wouldn't have been Pete. But the bottom line is Pete was a bad guy and he wasn't loyal and he wasn't honest. Um, I guess. You know, I hate to say this. I guess you could say that about a lot of people in that sort of industry, of whether it's hedge funds or M&A type people. Uh, and there's good in everything and bad in everything. But I think you get a lot of bad in that in that industry for sure. Because again, they'll they'll kill their mother for a dollar, you know, type of thing. So uh, he was one of those guys. He just uh, he wouldn't stop. And uh, you know, he he was a the master architect and he was able to engineer and choreograph a lot of things after my dad passed uh that were illegal and bad but that's a whole nother story but uh anyway well, maybe you want to uh, maybe you, know, you just want to briefly touch on the two will situation well yes um you, you'll love this part um two days after my father passed away peterson ordered the break-in into my father's office, which was locked, which my mother then went in and, um, you know, they they took the wills that existed. And, and the will that was probated, you'll love this, my father had his will updated at least three three to four times a year. The will that was probated, my father passed in 88, 1988. The will that was probated was an 83 will. <laughs> what does that tell you? My father was. So they must the have seen the other wills. Oh, absolutely, a hundred percent. Yeah, I, I went on in 1999 to hire uh, Jack Palladino, not to be confused with Pelicano, and 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 also Terry Lenzner, who were the top two private investigators and lawyers to prove uh, complicity in the sale of the paper and that there was another will, and and we were able to prove it. So. At the time, I did it uh, more to be cathartic, I think, than anything else, because I, I, the, the statute of limitations had passed, and 
all these other things. But I have all that documentation in a thing called the Pope Media Center, which we'll get to. Or maybe now's a good time. So great, this archive I have, I call it the Pope Media Center. I spent about 35 years on and way too much money. And But I have about 10 terabytes, about 200,000 multimedia files, 1,500 interviews. I have Roy Cohen. I have celebrities. I have my father. It is a, a treasure trove and an archive that everybody comes to me when they want to do a documentary and they want pictures and I have video and I have, I have what nobody has. Uh, and I spent, you know, I learned from my father, leave no stone unturned. And I spent probably close to $35 million in three and a half decades on, you know, accumulating all this information. So it, uh, it has been quite a journey. And anyway, all the information exists in there along with the lawyers, like I mentioned from Palladino and Lensner and, all the, all of their investigative findings. So as you can imagine, there's some probably people out there that don't want that to ever be released. Oh, well, without a doubt. And and anyone interested in the Pope Media Center? Where where is it? Well, I I keep it on on several different hard drives, so I have backup. And I did something that was smart along the way. I digitized everything. So you have to understand when we did the interviews, it was you know anywhere from 19 sort of 90 to present day, but you know, the tech technology wasn't in the nineties where it is now. So we digitized everything. We high res scanned all the pictures in. We, you know, we made it sort of, of an online archive. I, I don't have it available to the public. One day I want to find a home for it in a museum or something perhaps, or a library or both maybe. And, uh, well, maybe you know, do a documentary. Oh, yes. I mean, listen, there's beyond the ones I've been involved with, there's we could do TV shows. We could do a TV series. Uh, uh, we could do uh, movies, documentaries, uh, more books. I mean, it's endless, uh, the amount of material I have in there. It's, uh, in, as I said, 10 terabytes. It's a lot. You know, it's quite a bit. Right. right. And And just... Again, for our listeners, Weekly World News still exists, so maybe we can kind of uh, get them to do that documentary. That would be that would be great. Well, that would be great. Um, I, I, that was my favorite publication when I, I didn't have a lot of time when I worked with my dad because he had me mainly focused with the Inquirer. But anytime I had a little downtime, which wasn't much, I always meandered over to the Weekly World News as I called it, the Wacky World News, and I, uh, I just loved the energy there, the people. I loved the fact that it wasn't celebrity, and that it wasn't. Uh, it was just fun, and it was. Uh, it was easy. It was an and escape. Fun. It was fun. It was an escape, and and uh, yeah. to to be to be honest with you, the uh, showrunner and director and producer of uh, Riverdale. Um, the two things that he loved the most growing up was um, Archie Comics and Weekly World News. So sure, it sure. was very popular back then. And um, so maybe we can kind of beat them over the head and get them to do that documentary, um, which would involve them too. So Sure, sure. So now let's segue a little bit away from your history your family history because i mean you're, you're extremely eclectic and diverse um 
but let's talk about a little bit of who you are now. And I, you have an, a humanitarian effort called Save Our World, and you have a blog, and it's so different than how your grandfather thought, and I think how your dad thought. Uh, you're more concerned about the direction we as a world are going in now. And on your blog, you talk about the golden rule. And I'd like to read this. You say, we learned it in kindergarten. Somehow it seems to have turned from doing unto others as you would want them to do unto you and into whoever has the gold makes the rules and can do unto anyone as they please without consequence. In a world where making enough to stay housed and fed is a matter of life and death for many, while others, the prime concern is so conspicuously consume and flaunt wealth, even as the struggles of those further down the socioeconomic ladder become ever, ever more desperate. I think that's amazing. I just love that, what you said there. Let's talk a little bit about what, what you see today and, and where you want to place yourself. The big thing with, with Save the World is trying to get some sort of traction because the bottom line is we, you know, our world, whether you like it or not, is in peril. Um, our youngsters are a little messed up um, on what, you know, whether it's the dumbing and down of society, drugs, you know, uh, a lot of different things, mental illness. There's so many. And perhaps, not perhaps, the values and the morals of you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago were non-existent. And it's it's almost kind of becoming like a free-for-all if it isn't already. And my mission is to try to bring back some values, morals, teach people that it is, it is a brotherhood and a sisterhood. You don't have to need to believe and do a certain type of religion. But, you know, the bottom line is it doesn't matter who you are, what color, what race, it doesn't matter. You want to support humanity and, and be, you know, brothers and sisters for humanity and teach people about that. And, and sort of all that is lost these days. It's one thing to be capitalistic. It's one thing to strive to do great. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a bit out of control. And the brainwashing that goes on from a young age uh, and many different forms is, is – also out of control. So I struggle with it because, uh, you know, it's hard to educate people. I believe education is one of the biggest parts of this, educating people and then giving them timelines and solutions to this. So the biggest problem in the world is poverty, followed by probably climate change and some other things. And, you know, these, these issues are not getting better. They're getting worse. And let's face it, they, they could – there's a way to turn it around. I always say there's – you know, there's uh, 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 two ways to do this. One would be a benevolent dictator, but as I always say, that's an oxymoron because no dictator is going to lead with benevolence. So, And the other is a type of movement that can get people together and with enough bandwidth and enough, you know, people – you can affect change, but it's you know easier said than done. Um, 
you know, because people a lot of times are so consumed in their lives right now that, that it's, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult. And, you know, people, uh, unless you give them a TikTok or, you know, a minute clip, it's uh, the attention span isn't there and it's instant gratification. Uh, so, you know, you know, you look at the youngsters doing the, their stuff on the cell phone, you know, whether it's four or five, six hours a day, they, they may go through hundreds of different things. So uh, there's a lot, there's a lot uh, that I want to do there, but it's, it's never ending. It's something that I get very concerned for uh, the future generations uh, uh, you know, ours, of course, but the future more. And what's going to happen to, you know, to our world? Uh, you know, I'm, ve- I'm very concerned about this. So, Paul, coming from an extremely influential grandfather and, and family, let's, let's put it into perspective, and coming from a, a family who their whole life was news, and getting it out there, how do we do that today? There's so so much competition. How do we make a difference? I know we can do it one person at a time, but how how do we get a collective to start to realize that, you know, we we've got to come together and and just and and affect these changes because the future generation. I mean, you know, we don't want them to inherit something that we've made a mess of. And, and I think no. we have. And, and I think children's education needs to a reboot. Um, I personally don't think we oh. educate our children's correctly. And so, um, you know, you, you're, this is your passion. How do you see us accomplishing this? Well, I invite anybody into this, but I, I, I think, you know, you have to approach it in different angles and different ways. Music is one. If you look at the eight concerts that existed years ago, they were incredibly successful. Um, you know, like the telethons as well. Satire is another way, you know, approaching it with a, well, a bit of a, you know, comedy sometimes can reach people that perhaps if you approach it head on, you might not get the people's attention. They may, you know, they're going to be watching TikTok and do it. You know what I mean? You, I think we need to be more clever about how we approach this to get, as my dad would say, the masses behind it and involved. And then, you know, you can segue and bring them to the more serious parts. But if you hit them head on with the serious, you won't keep their attention. You'll lose their attention span. That's, that's what I think will happen. So I think, some of my approach would be in what I just said. And of course, you know, there's a serious part as well, but I think you need to get them interested first because if you don't get them interested, like in anything, like with the Inquirer or the Weekly World News, that you have to first get them interested, or as my father would say, give the people what they want. And then you can steer it in the direction you want it to go. I think that's the way to do it. You know, with with all the opinions today, it's a little hard to give the people what they want because everyone is kind of more individualized today. So it's hard to reach that. So, you know, but, um, you know, and the Internet is a huge influence, stupidly enough, but it is a huge influence. and, and, And I don't think we gather data enough 
these young people today, they don't gather data. They don't spend the time to learn from history. Um, it's, I think it's a difficult task, so I firmly believe it needs to start in the home. We as yeah. parents, and I am a parent, I'm also a grandparent, we, we cannot force upon our children or grandchildren our ideals, uh, if they're not bad. I mean, if they're, if they're good ideals, yes, but, you know, f what we think they should think. And I think that's a big problem today because kids are now starting to believe what their parents are telling them, and that's not always a good thing. And in school, you know, they're just, they see so much controversy. They can't stand up and do a Pledge of Allegiance. They can't read this because that. They can't do this because that. And everything is book learning, and we're not allowing our young people to think outside the box and and, and start to individualize themselves. And, you know, I don't, I'm baffled by it myself. I like to think that for my children and my grandchildren, it does begin with me and, and, and my, my children teaching their children, it begins with them. Um, but I don't think many, many households think that way. No, in fact, very few do. And also, as you said, Grace, nobody, including a lot of adults today, uh, people like, you know, not you and I, but a lot of other people, they, they really don't do the research. They just take whatever's thrown at them as the gospel or the word, and they believe it. And that is, is very problematic as well because so much, I don't want to use the words, but so much out there today is, is perhaps fake and not real. And that is a problem, and, and it's causing a lot of, you know, division and, and many other things in our, in our world. And it, it, it doesn't appear to be getting better, but, you know, that's for sure. So that also is something that I it, – it's a shame that there can't be one source or a couple of real news that wouldn't have to be vetted, right? But, you know – Again, that doesn't happen, and so what do you do if you're a youngster growing up and you're living most of your life on social media, the Internet, whatever, uh, you're going to have a propensity to go towards what, what kind of the influence, right? What, what you see, what your peers see, what your parents and your brothers and sisters tell you you should do and see. And, yeah, there's not a lot of autonomy in growing up, perhaps not much at all. Um, and that's a, that's a huge problem, huge, huge. No, we grow it's up sad. with the expectations of what we should do, who we should be, you know, what's the norm, what's this, that, because we don't want to be looked at or laughed at or bullied because we're different. And I know that's changing, and I think corporate America needs to have more of a stand I know Dove, um, the the soap company, and I, I don't remember who the who the uh, who the company is that holds Dove, but I know they have a campaign out now about self image, and beauty, and and they're trying to take some of the stuff that's out there on the internet, and and you know, say do fact fact. Um, uh, looking and say this is not true this is not this is 
shouldn't be and no, this is how it should be yeah i i'm i'm i was so smart. thrilled about that and i think if corporate america takes more of a stand and does something like that um i, I think it's a start i don't know correct me if i'm wrong but you know i think so oh it, it's a start another huge problem with social media whether it's instagram or all these different things you know people will put pictures of themselves up their photoshop their you know, it, it, it's, an, it's the understatement to say it's contrived. It's not real. It's not it's, – it's like we're living in a world that's not real. I mean, now you could – it's getting worse with this whole uh, metaverse and you – know, it, it, quite frankly, again, it's out of control. But nonetheless, it's where we're going. Uh, so that's another concern of mine is, is people living in the moment and living now and and you know being in the moment it's it's most people aren't i mean they're addicted to their phones to this to that um it that's another problem i want to address with save the world is that's another huge issue absolutely Uh, so there's many there's many there's many paul i don't know how to thank you this was wonderful i want everyone to go out and buy the book deeds of my father's how my grandfather and my father built New York and created the tabloid world of today. It is a fascinating book. Paul also has a blog, um, which is a blog on humanity. And um, hopefully we will get a chance to access all that media that, that, that you have. Paul, thank you for being on the show. You are listening to Becoming the Journey on iHeart. WOR710. You can follow us on Instagram at Becoming the Journey, and you can email us at Becoming the Journey at gmail.com. Great. Thank you. This has been a, an honor, and um, this has really been, I really enjoyed this. Great. Hi, Paul. Thanks. You have been listening to Becoming the Journey, hosted by Grace Lovray. Tune in weekly to hear more conversations that will inspire listeners along their life's journey. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.